Hey everyone, welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I guess this is a thing now. I'm Nick Veronin, editor of the paper, and I'm joined by Kevin Hume, our photo editor. How's it going, Kevin? Hey man, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good. This week we're going to talk with Nula Bashari about her story on an upcoming demonstration and march scheduled for this Sunday, June 28, called Pride is a Riot. We'll also talk with Ivan Mares, who goes by Sagittaire on stage, about his new album, Lovely Music. Finally, we'll catch up with staff writer Benjamin Schneider, who wrote this week's cover story, which delves into the roots of San Francisco's colorist movement, the architectural trend behind the Victorian homes known as the Painted Ladies. But before we get to all that, let's catch up on just what's going on in the news. Uh, Kevin, you just came from um, a rally at City Hall, right? I did, yeah. Um, There was a... It's like the third rally organized by uh, Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community, uh, Justice for Mario Woods Coalition. Um, This was another rally that is uh, trying to promote defunding the police um, and bringing the money into the Black community. Um, There were two others that were held uh, at the beginning of this month. The first one was just a few days, uh, I believe it was on June 1st. Uh, after the protests that really started uh, breaking out. There was easily a few thousand people at that one. They held another one a week later that served as uh, sort of like a a black church service, as they said, to memorialize George Floyd on the the day that he was laid to rest. And there was still a fair amount of people there. And at this one today, uh, I would say there was probably about 50 people um, you know, and it's, it's a little disheartening, uh, to contrast this a couple of days ago, I went to a rally, uh, with Nula and that was a couple hundred people, pretty decent turnout. So it's a little disheartening seeing how few people there were, but the, the other one earlier this week made me feel like it's still here and it's still thriving and people care that black lives matter. Yeah, I know that that's um, that's gonna be that's gonna be part of the challenge going forward is just maintaining the momentum. Um, and uh, thanks for letting us know what you saw. You're you're often um, our our eyes on the ground as we continue to work uh, remotely. A lot of us, um, but you're out there uh, shooting photos. So um, yeah, and uh, also just was announced that um, San Francisco is going to be postponing its planned uh, reopening um, for Monday. We were planning to reopen on Monday uh, in in another phase, which would have um, which would have allowed bars to have outdoor service. There's there's a couple things going on there. Uh, I know that the city actually had some issues getting uh, its its reopening plan to jive with um, ABC rules. Uh, apparently, when restaurants were allowed to reopen on the sidewalk um, about a week ago, those restaurants that did not have pre-existing patios um, but were taking advantage of the city's um, program to like take over sidewalks, they were not allowed to serve alcohol. And um, that was a big deal because the margins on food service and and sales are are so slim that without like being able to serve drinks it's really kind of not worth it for a lot of restaurants to even reopen um so i know the city was um working on solving that and we have a story by ben um on that issue uh you can read it on our website but of course the other thing is um we're in the midst of, of a spike um i think the warm weather is here. People have been cooped up for months, and uh, they are 
going out and maybe doing things that uh, they shouldn't do. Um, but I did read, I did read this morning that uh, I think it was on KQED preliminary research is showing that uh, there hasn't been a spike that, that researchers can peg to the protests, which might suggest that being outdoors in a big group, as long as everyone's wearing masks is fairly safe. Um, Kevin, can you kind of just give us your anecdotal evidence on that? I mean, you're a relatively young guy and uh, <laughs> you're in good shape, but you haven't, you haven't gotten, you haven't gotten sick and you've been out there shoulder to shoulder with people. I mean, that's one, that's one person's story. Of course, it's not very scientific, but um, I mean, how do you feel about being out there as long as everyone's wearing masks? I mean, I feel like when people are wearing masks that more, you know, that we're, we're safer than if we're all outdoors, but we're trying to eat and we're trying to drink because, you know, we're talking, we're having a good time and we're consuming. And so people's, you know, it's not, it's saliva, whatever they droplets, the droplets are able to, yeah, the droplets, you man. know, like <laughs> it's just that one thing that we have to think about. Like when we talk, how much, how much comes out of our mouth. <laughs> it's something that we have to be vigilant about. Like I know wearing a mask sucks, like, uh, but it's just a new reality that we all have to just understand that we're protecting the people around us and ourselves at the same time. And like the rallies that I was going to, I really can't remember too many people not wearing masks. Uh, when I've gone and shot a couple restaurants, uh, the people are not wearing their masks, you know, like the wait, mm. the, the wait staff are, because it's a mandate. Um, but the people that are sitting outside, they're, they're, they're in close quarters and they're really not, you know, it's, it's kind of alarming. We're all trying to get back out and interact and like, we just have to do it smarter. And if we're doing something mm -hmm. where others are around that we don't know, we have to be wearing these masks as much as possible. On to a, a more, a more positive, uh, topic. Um, Kevin, you shot some photos for this week's cover story. Uh, written by Benjamin Schneider on the colorist movement in San Francisco, which um, is the sort of architectural movement that um, began in the 60s, inspired by hippiedom and psychedelia, but also by gay men living in the Castro and um, the LGBTQ community there, uh, really uh, falling in love with San Francisco's Victorian houses and um, painting them uh in in a wide array of of colors purples and and bright uh bright yellows and and golds um and uh you went out with ben to talk to uh, a couple living in the castro about their home that was recently recently painted in this uh colorist style can you describe what you saw and what it was like taking photos out there yeah um it's this beautiful Victorian that's uh, right near uh, Harvey Milk Plaza, which is the the Castro station, uh, the Castro Metro station. Um, it's gorgeous, a gorgeous shade of purple that's really dark and deep and lush, um, almost an, a really deep indigo, uh, like on the pride flag. Um, and it's just a beautiful home. It has these wonderful gold accents, light lavender accents, some white um and it's you know it's just a beautiful example of what i think people think of when they think of those painted ladies cool cool well thanks for joining us today kevin um we're gonna uh take a quick break and then we're gonna talk to benjamin schneider who actually wrote this story we'll be right back gonna fight the 
Hey, we're back with Benjamin Schneider, uh, staff writer at SF Weekly. He wrote this week's cover story on the colorist movement. The headline is Queer Colors. Um, and it's all about um, the architectural movement behind uh, what uh, you might know as the Painted Ladies of San Francisco. Um, but there's actually a really interesting story uh, there that um, goes back to the 60s. It touches upon issues of race, gentrification, and uh, hippiedom, and the LGBTQ community. So, Ben, um, tell us about this story. Yeah, well, it began as a little bit more of a light story. I wanted to learn more about San Francisco's legendary Victorian houses, the Painted Ladies, um, with their crazy colors. Um, and I noticed all of these signs on a lot of uh, a lot of Victorians that had really nice paint jobs um, advertising color consultants. Um, this one, Bob Buckter, comes up a lot. So that got me thinking that I wanted to learn more about the people who paint San Francisco's houses in such vibrant colors. But as Nick, you just mentioned, it's, it's a much um, bigger story than that. As I, as I continued to research, I found, um, I found out a lot about the historical context in which this movement called the colorist movement started. Um, it's, it's hard to say kind of who, or, or um, what forces exactly started this movement, but it began in the 1960s um, when all kinds of people were, were trying to express themselves more and um, be more open about who they were, um, more proud, you could say. Um, and so that started this trend of people painting their houses in bright colors. Um, and there were a few um, artists in the hate area who were even... Um, who treated their houses as essentially ongoing art projects. Um, and that really captured the national media attention. Um, but kind of in a less dramatic way, uh, there was a pretty large wave of people moving to San Francisco in the sixties and seventies, a very large proportion of whom were gay men who um, were really leading the charge of fixing up San Francisco's Victorians, which had really been neglected for many years um, they, they weren't really considered the fine houses that they're considered today. Uh, and these, uh, these folks really dedicated their lives to fixing up these houses. And you ended up, um, with lots more houses in bright colors. Uh, they were brought back to their Victorian glory. Um, so, but a, a counter, uh, trend to the, uh, restoration of the Victorians was this early gentrification that was taking place in San Francisco. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of Victorian houses were fairly neglected, um, but that was in large part because they were in um, minority neighborhoods, in African-American neighborhoods, in the Fillmore or in Soma, uh, which was a very Filipino neighborhood in the 60s and 70s, um, where these neighborhoods were experiencing a lot of discrimination and systematic racism. Uh, and then starting in the 60s, urban renewal, where wide swaths of these neighborhoods were bulldozed. Um, and so a lot of gay men were coming into some of these neighborhoods, and there was a lot of tension um, between some of these existing residents um, and, and some of the gay men who were coming in and fixing up the houses. Um, and so 
it's just a complicated story because these gay men were themselves fleeing oppression around the country and were finding this safe haven in San Francisco and trying to celebrate um, who they were in many cases by uh, making the houses that they were living in as beautiful as possible and contributing to their community through that, through architectural preservation and stopping urban renewal. Um, but unfortunately, the fruits of that labor didn't always help uh, many of the existing residents of these neighborhoods who were um, subsequently having to deal with rising home prices um, and kind of a shift in culture in which they felt less welcome. Yeah, all very interesting stuff. Can you get us caught up on where we are today? As I understand, um, we're in the midst of uh, what you might call a modernist swing, a modernist current in um, architectural style and aesthetic, which has um, a lot of people painting their Victorian homes um, in more muted tones. However, there are still um, people, including one gay couple that you talked to for this story, that um, uh, want to preserve um, this more colorful um, era, uh, this more colorful style. Talk about that. Yeah, so this piece wasn't just a historical look back. I also uh, talked to a number of people who are still part of this colorist movement today, uh, a painter named Nita Riccardi, and some of her clients, um, Craig Davini, and his husband, Ashley McCumber, and uh, their co-owner of their two-unit building, Jeffrey Plosher. Um, and it was really interesting to hear from all of them about um, what these colors mean to, um, to them and, and why they are so passionate about, um, in, in the case of Craig, um, his, his home, and in the case of Nita, um, all of the houses that she has painted across San Francisco. Um, and there's definitely a sense in the city. It was encapsulated in a recent Chronicle article by my friend Annie Weinstein that there are a lot of gray houses um, all of a sudden, especially Victorian houses that people are used to seeing in bright colors. Um, and I think the extent of this trend is debatable. Um, there's definitely a few really noticeable gray houses. Um, I think especially in the Mission District, other kind of neighborhoods that are, are thought to be more like gentrifying that are kind of at the center of the cultural um, conflicts in the city. Um, but they're certainly there. And for people like Nita Riccardi, whose job is painting houses in bright colors, it's not something she's super stoked about. Um, but she, what she told me is that she really sees these trends in color and, and paint style being cyclical, just like fashion. Um, and so she thinks that bright colors are coming back and uh, Craig Davini, um, the homeowner in the Castro I spoke to, uh, seems to be part of that trend. He um, wanted to go for a very vibrant look at his house um, using purple and lavender um, with gold leaf trim and um, uh, some really funky colors like Arizona peach and uh, smoked salmon. Um, and I, I went over there with our photographer and, and saw their house. And um, it's really beautiful. Um, and I was really impressed with with uh, what they did there. Um, but it seems like there's there's a, a spirit in San Francisco that will always try to seek to keep these houses as colorful as possible because you can really bring out the details, um, all those those little intricate wooden ornaments on the front of the Victorian houses by using colors. Um, and that's, that's what um, some of the folks I talked to were interested in doing. And it sounds like Nita, the painter I spoke to, is... Um, 
dedicated her life to it and is not stopping anytime soon. She's pushing all her clients to uh, go as bright and as bold as possible and use a lot of colors on their houses. All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, coming to the table with this story, Ben. It's a great story. You can read it in uh, this week's issue of SF Weekly online uh, and in our e-edition in the archives section of our website. Um, Ben, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Nick. back with Nula Bashari, former news editor and current freelancer for SF Weekly. She wrote this week's story on the Pride is a Riot demonstration scheduled for this Sunday in San Francisco. Uh, in the wake of the pandemic, all official Pride celebrations have been moved online, but that hasn't stopped grassroots efforts to draw attention to issues of intersectionality within the LGBTQ community. So, Nula, tell us about this week's demonstration and, and a little bit about your story, Pride is a Riot. Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, I started noticing these flyers popping up mostly on Instagram, um, advertising an event called Pride is a Riot. And the reporter in me was like, what's what's this about? So I started searching around and kind of hit a dead end. There were no events on Facebook. Um, You know, I couldn't really find a website of the organizers. There was an event listing on Indie Bay. Um, but there was a lot of mystery surrounding this event. <laughs> so um, the queer community is, you know, enormous in the Bay Area, but I feel like I have a pretty decent connection to people from different communities within it. So I just started asking around. Um, and so I sent emails and text messages and Facebook messages to people I know um, who are queer, who work in politics. Um, I talked to friends who work for the actual official Pride organization. Uh, I talked to union organizers. I talked to people in the poly community. And everywhere I went, people were like, we don't know who's organizing it. It was kind of a mystery. Okay. So uh, tell us about how you finally, uh, you had a breakthrough eventually. How long did that take and and how how did that breakthrough come to you? Uh, It came through Signal, which is an encrypted messaging app that's becoming more and more popular, particularly as protests increase. Um, So people can send messages to one another and you know, hopefully not have it intercepted by authorities. So a couple of weeks in, I'd I'd just kind of given up. I was like, I don't know who's organizing this. I don't really know, you know, what the deal is. And I got an alert in the middle of a meeting last Monday. um, And it was from someone who's organizing it who said, we hear you're trying to get in touch with us and we're happy to talk. Yeah, this person who identified themselves as T gave you some pretty uh, colorful, um, you know, proclamations. Yeah. So um, when you have an opportunity to interview someone as a reporter uh, and you don't know who they are, it's kind of tricky to figure out what questions to ask, right? Like, I don't know if this is a group of people of color. Um, I assume they are based off of the, you know, the flyers that they've been releasing, but I don't know anything about their background. And so I had one option, which was to send them a series of questions that was along the lines of like, you know, who are you? Why did you, you know, decide to organize this protest? And instead, I was like, if I have one opportunity to interview them, I'm going to really send them some difficult questions to answer. (laughs) So my questions were along the lines of, you know, 
uh, how do you feel about the shift that the big official pride has taken um, towards kind of corporate advertisement and police presence? Um, I asked them what the queer can, community can do to um, include more people of color in its movements. So I really kind of sent, sent some tricky questions their way. And to be honest, I'm not sure that they had gone through the process of identifying all of those values yet. Um, it, it sounds like a large group of people and it took them a few days to get back to me. <laughs> right. Which is always great when you're on deadline. Yeah. Let's, let's back up a little bit um, and talk about the, the name of this event and, you know, the significance of that name pride is riot. Yeah. So pride is a riot um, as I understand it. Um, and if anyone out there has a different interpretation, feel free to, to throw that in. Um, but Pride is a Riot is a nod to two specific riots in particular that happened in the 1960s in San Francisco and in New York. So the first one that actually happened, which is lesser known outside of the city, happened at Compton's Cafeteria, which is a place in the Tenderloin that was a gathering spot for um, trans people in the 60s and was also heavily policed. Um, people were getting picked up and arrested all the time, um, beaten up. There was a lot of abuse happening. And so one evening in 1966, uh, the community decided to fight back and they ended up getting into kind of a brawl with the police. And it was one of the first efforts to really stand up for their identities and their rights um, pre Stonewall. So three years later, a similar event happened in Stonewall and it's often kind of viewed in queer history that those were the beginning of our modern queer movement and our resistance and that it was actually trans people who paved the way uh, for a lot of the freedoms and privileges that we now have. Just to jump in, Stonewall was uh, another uh, riot or series of sort of uprisings in Greenwich Village around the Stonewall Inn, was it? Uh, a bar in Greenwich so. Village. I think that's what it was called. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so but uh, yeah. you were just about to make the point that, that the Compton's Cafeteria riot was very much, um, th there was a, a big trans contingent um, that, gathered at, at Compton's cafeteria, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it is, you know, similar to Stonewall, um, but it just happened earlier and it happened in San Francisco. So when you look at San Francisco's queer history, um, Compton's cafeteria is a really big landmark of that. And so I think what um, the modern community, when they're saying pride is a riot, is really a reclamation of those movements and an acknowledgement that it wasn't always pretty to get where we are today. You know, that we've had a lot of wins in the queer community in terms of legislation and legalizing gay marriage and so on and so forth. But the beginning of the movement really did start with these riots in the streets. So I think it's a, an interesting nod to the past um, in a year where the traditional official pride is canceled to take it back to the roots of the issues as opposed to the celebration um, and to really think about how much farther we have to go as a queer community um, in order to establish equality for all. And uh, I also wanted to uh, briefly touch upon the significance of the trans community uh, because I think um, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, there's been um, a heightened awareness of the what what's called intersectionality and I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of this demonstration yeah absolutely so um san francisco is you know not as diverse as it used to be um and even within the queer community there are levels of power and so the castro for example is historically very 
full of gay men and very white. And it hasn't always been very inclusive um, for people of color and particularly transgender people of color. And that's part of the reason that the tenderloin has um, been kind of acknowledged as the cornerstone of the trans community and that it was a safe place to be. And so when we talk about equality in all of these different communities, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, um, we really have to be aware of the different ways in which communities are welcoming or not welcoming mm-hmm. <laughs> to people of color. And so the queer community in particular, I think, you know, there is a little bit more of a nod to intersectionality and the differences of experience for people of color than maybe say in some other communities, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And there was a march um, led by trans people of color. Gosh, when was that? Last week, I think, or the week before. Um, Time is irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was leading to the violence that trans women of color in particular are facing um, during this time. And if we're talking about Black lives mattering, we really have to look at Black trans lives, Black homeless lives, um, and discuss all of the different areas in which um, violence and systemic racism is affecting people. So by acknowledging Pride as a riot as this upcoming event, um, the organizers have really centered that and are saying, you know, people of color are an enormous part of our movement. Um, Let me find a good quote that they said. They say corporate pride, which is the traditional pride, erases queer and trans people of color. Uh, We need a pride that will elevate and center black, queer and transgender communities and their voices and demands. This is our priority in organizing Pride as a Riot. Any city-sanctioned business-as-usual pride would serve only to dilute and flatten the call from Black revolutionaries to abolish white supremacy, police, and the terror they inflict. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about the event itself? Yeah, so I, you know, I was so focused on asking them slightly difficult questions that I didn't actually say, you know, what exactly is happening on Sunday at Pride as a Riot, which is my fault as a reporter. So we still don't actually know. And I, you know, I think part of that is intentional is that they don't want, they want people to come and see what is going to be in person. Um, All I know is that everyone is gathering at noon in Dolores Park on Sunday, the 28th of June. And then there's a march at two. So what happens between noon and two, I don't know. If I had to hazard a guess, I would say probably some speeches and performances. Um, But we'll see. They did tell me that it will be a, let me find the quote, a gnashing of teeth, bacchanalian revels, righteous anger, ecstatic dancing, voices of rage and pain and refusals of silence. So that's what I've got. Okay. Well, I want to thank you again, Nula, for joining us. And uh, you can read Nula's story on our website and in our e-edition. Thanks again, Nula. My pleasure. back with Ivan Mares, the man behind the music we've just been listening to. Say Something Nice is the lead single from Ivan's forthcoming debut album, Lovely Music, which he recorded under his stage name, Sagittaire. SF Weekly music writer Will Reisman recently profiled Sagittaire, and you can read that piece on our website under the music tab. So, uh, Ivan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I understand that uh, you've been playing music uh, for quite some time and that for a lot of your songwriting days, uh, you were living in San Francisco, right? 
That's correct. Um, and how long did, were you living in San Francisco? When were you living there? Moved there in 2010. And I left a year and a half ago. So 2018, end of 2018, moved back to LA, which is where I'm originally from. Cool. Can you talk about how living in the city kind of shaped your sound? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I really started to to write songs uh, around the time I moved to San Francisco. I had a few friends who were in bands in San Francisco that who were uh, doing a lot of interesting work, and that was really a, a big influence. I was really just then learning how to, to, to write songs, but I was inspired by what was happening in San Francisco, for sure. Can you talk a little bit more about what you might have picked up um, while here? Are you saying that you really started writing music and playing music when you moved to the city and you weren't playing before then or what? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I had a friend uh, who um, was playing in that band Girls. Remember Girls? Yes. Um, yeah. And that was, I remember, you know, he he just, he was a guitar player in that band for a while and I think when he joined that band, it was just a very exciting time, and it really pushed me to to start writing my own songs. There was a lot of stuff in, in the air at the time. Um, I had moved from Madison, Wisconsin, and bands like Peking Lights and Zola Jesus were, uh, and and this musician Julian Lynch were had had an influenced me there as well to 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 start doing my own my own music uh, and. Then in San Francisco, there was a whole other scene, both uh, rock-based bands, and and then there was a whole group of experimental musicians, this this group Rangers, who was doing really interesting work as well. And I, I was really into, I was interested in, in, in both of those worlds and felt like I had sort of one foot in, in each. But but I, But I ended up getting really obsessed with writing songs and 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 trying to to find my own voice as a singer and songwriter and and ended up spending around six you know six years straight just writing constantly and recording a lot of material I, I built up around you know maybe like five albums worth of, of music uh not just demos but actually going into the studio and recording them I was really just throwing things at the wall to see what stuck, but I was kind of going, really going for it at the same time and, you know, getting a lot of outside musicians, uh, local musicians to contribute to my songs. I think I, I must have worked with like 50 San Francisco and Oakland um, musicians, at least. I mean, just tons of people. I had like, I even like worked with string players and horn, horn brass players, just like oh. trying all kinds of stuff because I really just was figuring out what exactly I wanted to do, so... Yeah, I mean, listening to lovely music, um, I can hear, you know, I can hear girls a little bit. I can hear White <laughs> Fence a little bit. Okay. Um, and of course, those artists were influenced by great artists that came before them. Um, the Beach Boys come to mind and um, other sort of um, Baroque psychedelia acts uh, of the of the 60s and early 70s come to mind. Um, well, can I just say... Can I just yeah, yeah you know that 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 sound is it's one of it's one of the sounds that I'm I guess I call attention to or I'm I'm interested in but it's that's just one of many I think that this album is a reflection of that but you know I have I have a whole 
I feel like I have a whole other uh, group of influences that are quite we'll different about. from that. When I made the songs that ended up on Lovely Music, I was also working on a whole other set of songs that were, I would say, much more rooted in uh, maybe like uh, jazz, mu jazz or um, more exploratory, atmospheric compositions and, and uh, maybe even modern classical music, if I could say so. I mean, that's a little... Hmm. Um, <laughs> maybe that's not quite right, but but I was I was trying to play around more with with the like the the space uh, between the notes. I mean, not not totally going for for st straight pop f uh, formula uh, on 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 that set of songs. So I was really I feel like I'm always kind of working in those two modes, like because I, I do like the idea of trying to fit a lot of ideas into a short piece of music, and that's really what this album is trying to do um, and then but I also have a lot of lo much longer compositions that uh, sort of play with with uh, the with songwriting uh, a little bit more loosely and and uh, I would say are just not not quite as straightforward the the song that we debuted on SF weekly today uh, June 26th, Friday, uh, is Say Something Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular song and, you know, why you wanted it to be the, the lead single on your album? Yeah, sure. Uh, this one, I, I really like the, uh, the way that we, that my, my engineer, uh, Jason Kick, and I put it together because um, I think it has, the, 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 I like the way it sounds, the production quality of it. Kind of recalls another time, but I I think that the the way that I they, that I sing the vocal is um, kind of goes counter to that, and it's pretty uh, it's not too stylized, you know. It kind of just sounds like me in a way, just sort of talking into your ear. And the, <laughs> and, and the and, and you worked with is from yeah. San Francisco, if I could interject, correct? Jason Kick, yeah. Um, very important figure for me. I mean, we recorded all these songs together, and he's sort of an unsung he hero of this of the of the scene. He's become a a go-to producer in the the Bay Area uh, as of you know I don't know in the last few years for for sure. Well, he's worked with a lot of well, tons of artists. He's always working, and he he's a a great songwriter himself. You recently moved back to Los Angeles, like you said, where you're from. Um, yeah. But uh, this album, um, in addition to, you know, probably drawing on influences that you picked up in San Francisco, also has a, a connection to an event that, that everyone in the Bay Area's creative community um, remembers well, um, the Ghost Ship Fire. Can you tell us about your experience at Ghost Ship on that um, fateful night in 2016 and, and then talk about how that experience uh, informed this record? Uh, sure, yeah. I, I don't know if I want to go into the actual night itself, but can I just say that after I experienced it, it, I, it just really uh, sparked some need to, to want to write more, and I, I, I kind of got thrust into a mode of... of of making a lot more music sort of daily and, and going in and, and vomiting out a lot of ideas that I, I guess was tied to going through that and 
really needing to to to, to pause and reflect on on my life so far. I, I think that incident uh, really just sort of shook me up and 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 caused me to to maybe just stop going through uh, you know day to day you know going to work and starting all over again and just t to take a second to pause and sort of reflect on my time in San Francisco up until then and, and my relationships with people, I, I just hadn't really been, or forced myself to 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 sit with all of my experiences and that experience really uh, helped, helped me do that. And and, and that created a, a, a ton of uh, material actually to glean from in order to, that ended up turning into these songs um, that don't necessarily directly uh, refer to the incident, but I think because they were written in in, in the wake of it, you know, they're it's tied to that uh, that night for sure. Well, once again, uh, we've been speaking with Ivan Mares. Uh, he goes by Sagittaire, and um, his new album is Lovely Music. And we will go out playing you a little bit more of Say Something Nice, the lead single from that album. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. As always, you can catch us online at sfweekly.com. Go there for all the latest news, arts, music, nightlife, and entertainment coverage. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.